In our continuing series on distributed systems engineering, I talked to my colleague Aditya Chandra about performance optimization in distributed systems. There are some really neat things that he's gotten into, and he shares them with us on today's episode of Streaming Audio, a podcast about Kafka, Confluent, and the cloud. Hello and welcome to another episode of Streaming Audio. I am, as always, your host, Tim Berglund, and I'm joined in the virtual studio today, which is a virtual video studio also, just as a Reminder, these are available on YouTube as well as in audio format. Anyway, I'm joined in the virtual studio today by my coworker, Aditya Chandra. Aditya, welcome to Streaming Audio. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Thanks for uh, inviting me. And uh, it's great to be on the show and uh, talk about distributed systems. Cool. Now, you are an engineer in the Kafka performance team here at Confluent, and this is one of our episodes in a series where we're talking about distributed systems engineering. So I want to talk a little bit about what you actually do on the Kafka performance team, but also about how you got into that kind of work and just what separates it from other kinds of engineering. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that sounds great. And uh, in the Kafka performance team, uh, we're looking mostly at improving Kafka performance in terms of scalability, in terms of cost. Uh, and a big chunk of it is like running Kafka super efficiently on Confluent Cloud uh, so that we get the biggest uh, bang for the buck when we are running it there. Uh, and also like, you know, uh, scalability in terms of we have lots of customers and uh, all of them have completely different use cases. Uh, how do we run uh, Kafka efficiently for each one of them? And uh, especially there are these use cases with like, you know, there'll be some customers who are really large, some customers who are really small, some customers who have large message sizes, some of them have small message sizes. It's a whole bunch of things. And uh, so we will really want to focus on that to improve it and, uh, you know, uh, uh, like have a platform where you, you, like our customers don't have to worry about performance at all. They can throw any kind of workflow and we should be able to handle it. So that's kind of what uh, excites me about uh, working on this. And uh, how I got here, uh, basically, uh, I've been working, I, I was at AWS for seven years before this, a uh, pretty long time uh, working on the cloud as it grew. Uh, there was tremendous growth. And I worked on Aurora uh, uh, on the storage uh, layer where I did uh, perform, like I, I did like cluster management, load balancing, et cetera. And uh, I also Could you remind work... us what AWS Aurora is. So yeah, AWS Aurora is this, uh, uh, you know, it's a MySQL and Postgres uh, compatible uh, database. Uh, but the key innovation was this uh, separate storage layer. Uh, the incredible thing was, uh, like you know, if you have these block storage uh, layers where you're writing, you know, like you know, if you have you have the Elastic Block Storage EBS in AWS where you're writing, like say, Fightable K. Uh, blocks to the disk, uh, like five bytes. But in, in like what you can do in uh, the Aurora storage engine, instead of uh, uh, you know entire blocks, you can write diffs. It can be small diffs. It can be a, a small number of bytes. It can be large number of bytes. So for a storage engine that is on the, uh, the like you know on the network, it's kind of like the Kafka, like using Kafka, right? It's something on the network. If you just write the changes instead of writing an entire page each time, I mean, 
like large number of blocks, which is a collection of pages. Uh, what you get is the the amount of if network is your bottleneck, the amount of stuff you have to write on the network goes down uh, significantly. So then on our storage side, uh, what we would do is depending on the database that you have, we could apply those changes, and then we could uh, support a ton of features because of that. Uh, you know, key change. So that was a really interesting uh, innovation uh, uh, that you know was done at AWS, and uh, the storage engine had like tons of features because of that. You know, like we uh, would like like a typical thing that happens in a database is when you like go down and then you have to recover, you have to replay all these changes. So if you have a normal MySQL, all the changes get replayed on a single instance. But in this case, what happens is you have all these, uh, you have this big storage cluster, where you're not writing to a single storage instance, instead of your, your, your database is now writing to, let's say, 100 or 20, 50, depends on how big our storage clusters. So let's say 100, and all of these can replay the, the changes because they've got a subset of these changes and they can come back and they're almost like, so when your database restarts, it's it's catching up really quickly. It can just say, hey, give me the latest version of the page, and they would like re, you know replay it and give you the latest version. Uh, so that was amazing. So the re, the restart times were fast, and we could do uh, availability right instead of you having to worry. We would have in these instances in different AZs, so you wouldn't lose data if uh, any one of them went through. So it was much highly available. And we could also do backup online, where again your main uh, instance doesn't have to worry about backup. You have these uh, other, uh, like you, these storage servers, which are collecting all these changes, logs, and they're like actually, uh, you know, working through them and then uh, persisting them on disk. But they're also like have these backup things, which are uh, like you know pulling this and persisting it, let's say in S3 or like something that is uh, cheaper storage. Uh, so you get that, like you, we got, you get online backups, which are always up to date. You don't have to worry about it. So these were some of the features. And then there were a bunch of other things that got built on top of it. Like you could, uh, like, you know, uh, clone your uh, storage, uh, you know, uh, volumes uh, pretty quickly because now it's uh, on the cloud. I mean, not on, like you have these storage clusters basically. And then if you spin up a new uh, database cluster, uh, which needs to, uh, a new database instance from your uh, current one, which needs to point to this, then you can just have like, you know, it can be the same storage nodes that it talks. Uh, it just needs to decide from what point uh, you would have cloned and then only write from there would be uh, written separately. So that was an interesting feature. And you also have uh, becomes very interesting in terms of replicas. Like you know, you have all these replicas sitting around in your database. Your master is writing, and the replicas can now separately read from the storage. So it's it's kind of like separating storage compute, and it gives you all these advantages uh, because you have these replicas that can directly read from these storage clusters. They can ask, hey, give me this page or that page, whichever page they're interested in, and they can decide how much they'll cache. Uh, they don't have to be they don't have to cache everything from the master. Uh, they still have to do for transactions, etc. There are a bunch of like you know nuances to this, uh, but this is the high-level thing of how it was beneficial. And, uh, and yeah, so like that was seven years. Oh, go ahead. So that was just one part of it. After that, I want to talk about performance, but that's another uh, story. So uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, in terms it sounds of like that's good. Good preparation. Uh, seven years of that. Um, was uh, 
you know, good training for more distributed systems work, right? You you spent yes a lot of so time building key. really a pretty interesting product. That sounds like there's some sort of log like concepts in there that enabled some of that coolness. If I heard yes, you right. definitely, um, yes, definitely. It was basically yeah. a log. It's amazing right? what happens when you use logs. Yes. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, cool. So, so uh, you yeah, came I mean, there was there a bit more Kafka performance engineering. Right. So there was a segue after that. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I went off uh, talking about Aurora for a long time, but uh, the the like the other thing that I did was uh, I was also uh, part of the Elasticsearch uh, team uh, at AWS, and the. Uh, a key uh, problem there was a slightly different problem. Uh, was like you know we had all these uh, you know instances clusters of Elasticsearch running, and managing it was a pretty uh, you know significant problem because there were just so many of these. And to do a really good job of managing it, you uh, had to understand uh, the performance and what is actually happening in each of them. So we built something called Performance Analyzer. Uh, that looked at, uh, you know, uh, like where for each uh, particular cluster, where is your, uh, uh, you know, CPU, where are your resources being used? Like who's using your CPU, who's using, uh, where is memory being allocated, who are the top consumers? So that we could then take decisions on better load balancing uh, and better auto tuning. So recently Amazon launched uh, uh, Amazon Auto Tune. Uh, in in their Elasticsearch service, which you know utilizes a lot of these things to automatically tune things like how much memory to allocate, where to allocate memory, and uh, yeah, I mean, and go, like you know, you can use that for a lot of things that we do on uh, Kafka as well. Like you can call it, like we have yeah. these self balancing clusters, which can automatically you know move stuff around and load balance. Uh, so that's kind of how I ended up uh, in this team. That's their auto-tune, not to be confused with the voice processing auto-tune service, completely different thing, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But some of us, when we sing, you know, we could use that. Um, so yeah, tell us about how that, how then you came into the the uh, Kafka performance team. Because I, I always like to know, uh, you know, when I talk to people who do the kind of work that you do, uh, how did you get there? And it, it seems like, I don't know, seven years building Aurora and Elasticsearch Autotune things would be pretty good preparation. Um, but tell us a little bit about what you do now. Sure. Yeah. So now I think the like the first project I looked at was uh, like, how can we improve, uh, you know, costs uh, at Confluent Cloud? How can we, can we actually uh, take uh, Kafka? and run it with like half the memory. So that was very interesting to me. Like having worked at Aurora, which was logs, uh, but the abstraction for the user was not logs. And Kafka just takes logs and the abstraction is logs. So I think that's super powerful. So a lot of the things that we built on the storage engine was actually logs, right? Like how do we take this? Where's the incoming queue? Like how do you persist it on disk? A lot of it was that. And if you can, you know, move some parts of it and you can, anybody can consume the log like i could clearly tell that you know this is super powerful and it, it enables uh, you to build a lot of interesting uh, software on top of it like aurora you can have all these databases that use this uh, so i was overall interested in this and 
at uh, Confluent, so the first thing I worked on was this, uh, like basically run it with half the memory. And the interesting thing there was like I spent a bunch of time in Elasticsearch where memory was a big problem. So you have to understand where is memory actually being allocated. But in Kafka, it's like Kafka is super good at uh, memory, right? It uses, like, I was surprised that it uses such a, a, a small amount of memory. It's a storage uh, system. And uh, we would, uh, like, you know, it runs with like six gigabytes of uh, the JVM heap. Uh, so for context, uh, heap is where we uh, allocate, uh, you know, most of the objects in Java when you create a uh, a new object, it's allocated on the heap and the references to it are held in uh, the stack. And, uh, you know, and uh, so you, you need a larger heap if you have a lot of these live objects that you are constantly uh, like using. And Kafka, because it persists things to the disk and it also uses uh, the, the operating system page cache for more efficient IO, doesn't really keep uh, too much of uh, of these live objects, uh, you know, at any point in time. The working set is pretty small, so uh, that was interesting. Like I, I got an opportunity to look at all the uh, production clusters in Confluent that are running, generate a lot of uh, you know um, synthetic workloads to understand for different use cases where you have high and different message sizes. Um, you know where you have consumers lagging, consumers uh, who are consuming immediately after a producer, et cetera. And uh, yeah, I mean, we were able to, so Kafka runs really well with even just six gigabytes of heap. Uh, but what we saw is for a lot of cases, you don't even need six gigabytes. You can go to like four gigabytes and still get fantastic performance. I mean, that's pretty small. And the working set size was like a gigabyte of memory. Like the allocation rate was also not uh, so high that we needed uh, too much more. And uh, that was interesting. So there was a bunch of things around how do you measure this? What do we do when uh, if there are certain cases where you know where you exceed this total heap utilization? Uh, so those are some of the interesting problems. And uh, the other interesting thing was the page cache itself, like which is used to like you know uh, improve I/O reads and I/O write. And uh, also like I got to mention uh, to set the context why is was this possible right you know why how can you out of the blue you know shrink memory by 50 percent uh, why was it not possible before i think the key thing was uh, we started using much better disks and how did we start using much better disks you know uh, like well so like the thing to keep in mind is we have all these uh, ssds now uh, which are super yes. uh, good in terms of bandwidth uh, so they're very fast. You can do random reads, etc. But they're very expensive in terms of uh, per gigabyte cost. Like if you now have, like, say, 10 gigabyte, like if you have a terabyte of an SSD, it's pretty expensive. But uh, Confluent launched a tiered storage, uh, which allows us to move uh, all this data, which is uh, slightly older, to a different tier, a cheaper tier, which where the cost per gigabyte is much smaller. But bandwidth is a lot, lot more expensive, slower, uh, so throughput can suffer. So what we did is we moved to SSDs for the tier immediately to, to what is attached to the broker. And there we got much higher bandwidth. So what happens when you shrink your page cache is that your writes can get smaller, your reads can get a little more frequent. But this SSD can do bandwidth really well. Uh, it's more expensive if you want to uh, provision a lot. We don't need to provision a lot anymore because we have uh, 
like you know infinite storage where we go to uh, s3 or we go to a, a different uh, object storage in the cloud and uh, so that was what that really enabled us and we were able to shrink the page cache significantly uh, we had to uh, tune parts of it uh, we've found interesting uh, tuning lessons as part of this uh, exercise uh, so there are two main things that you need to understand about the page cache. Uh, basic uh, thing is when uh, Kafka writes to the disk, uh, when so you have, let's say you have a file per partition in Kafka and uh, you wrote all these uh, records to it. And these records are not immediately written to the disk because let's say you have a lot of partitions. Let's say you have thousand partitions, you have thousand files and they're all small updates that are going to each file. So what Kafka does is it just tells the operating system, hey, I want to write all these things. And all these things are kept in memory and not immediately flushed to the disk. Uh, and then you, we have these configs where we tell, where, like, you know, where the operating system has these flusher threads that wake up every once in a while, depending on your config, and then write all these to disk. But when they are writing it, these are operating can, system level flusher threads. This is not in yes, Kafka, these, right? Yeah, these are operating system level flusher threads. And the thing that you can do here, the operating system does, the drivers, like for example, if we take EBS, which is the AWS equivalent, uh, what it can do is it can take 32K uh, sequential reads. Uh, let's say you have multiple updates that are next to each other. It can combine them into a single 256K write, and it can write it in one uh, write. And that is a lot more efficient. So you get a lot, a bit much higher bandwidth by doing this buffering. And so your disk uh, throughput uh, is uh, like you can get much higher throughput with the same disk. So that's the advantage of a bigger cache. So you can keep things uh, longer in memory. And you can also, like the other way it works is if you're changing the same piece of information multiple times, and then we write it to disk only once. This doesn't happen very frequently with Kafka, but there are some metadata files where this can happen. So that can also reduce uh, your uh, you know, the amount of IO that you want. So that's how it's efficient. And on the read side, how it's efficient is uh, basically when you're making these changes, they're all kept in RAM. So if your consumers come up and read immediately after a producer, which is what we see in most of the use cases, all our, the, the consumer lag is in milliseconds in most cases, people come up and read what's written uh, almost instantaneously, then uh, you know, you can service it directly from your memory. You don't have to go to the disk at all. Uh, you have all the things that have been written and you've kept it in this fast uh, but transient storage in main memory and you just give the responses back. Uh, so this is another thing. So what happens here is if you shrink the cache, then you have lesser amount of uh, time that you'd want to keep there. And uh, so that was pretty interesting. And uh, some of the things that we have advantages in the future that we should look at is like, you know, uh, when do we do out-of-band reads? For example, one thing that comes up and does reads is the tiered uh, archiver, where we are actually you know, moving stuff to a different tier. Uh, and for that, we want to read in bigger batches. Ah, right. And those are older, those are older messages yeah. by definition. Yeah, right. And those are older yeah. messages by Apologies definition. to the page cache. So yeah, yeah. So that is not going to hit. So if, you, if, you're, if your goal is everything has to hit the page cache, that's not going to happen. So that's where SSDs help. So it's good for them to read. But the thing that we want to do is it should probably directly read from the disk. It doesn't have to come to the cache. Because once it writes to S3, the other optimization we have uh, is once it's written to an object store, if you read something from the object store, we service it directly. It doesn't go to the cache anymore. 
because we think this is historical data and then it may not be uh, you know read again so we can directly mm-hmm. uh, send it to uh, the consumers that are requesting it so that way it does not uh, like you know pollute the cache for all these new writes and new reads that are happening like at inside the uh, so that is one and uh, yeah i mean in terms of uh, improvements what we can do is when it starts moving we can skip the cache uh, another thing to keep in mind this was a very interesting is the page is how the page cache itself works right like when those flusher threads come up and uh, write to this so one thing we tried is uh, we actually uh, configured those flusher threads to come in very late uh, so that you'll have uh, as much uh, like say you have a lot of uh, writes uh, that are in uh, memory and then they come up very late and they uh, write uh, and then we noticed this interesting thing we actually got worse more writes more smaller writes uh, with a large flusher thread i mean large if they came up much later versus something that came up earlier and this was very hard to understand so we had to look at you know uh, a bunch of traces etc from the operating system uh, but uh, but but from what we understand uh, what is happening here is that uh, if you wait too long there are all these other consumers so you have to understand how the read cache bit of the page cache works so it's basically a lru cache so least recently used uh, so whoever is reading uh, they go to the top of the cache so anything that was updated uh, slightly old starts going to the end of it and you have a, a fixed amount of space so when you run out of space everything at the end gets thrown away and in case it's not written if it's a write buffer then it gets written to disk so now what happens is if you delay the flusher threads long enough then the actual memory pressure kicks in it goes to the end of the lru and gets written to disk so you get again small writes that can actually get written so the main advantage we got with the flusher threads was they would come up and write in these batches where they would take a bunch of guys and then put these sequential writes instead of we made it large enough then the, these writes would reach the end of the lru and then instead get written like in that process that was also interesting so you, you want still to get a big do you still get a big gain on SSDs um, doing larger sequential writes? Does that matter as much? No, like it's not much larger sequential writes. For example, uh, like on EBS, like the max for a hard disk is a megabyte uh, in terms of writes. For an SSD, it's just 256K. Uh, but with 256K, you do get a benefit in terms of, uh, it, it doesn't have to be, uh, and another thing to keep in mind is that this is not just SSD, right? You also have these uh, cloud provider things where it's going over the network. Uh, so there are other things in between where a bigger batch uh, does help. So, uh, so yeah, to your point, it's still faster in terms of uh, 4K. And I think it's not just probably sequential, uh, but in this case, uh, like it's, it's, it's a single call and... Uh, yeah, so that's what we've seen from our experiments that we could actually bring it down by like a factor of two or three by setting tuning this buffer size uh, well. Oh wow! Uh, but they're very fast. So, so yeah, I mean, the final thing is yeah. these SSDs are so fast that it actually doesn't matter from what you said, like what you were saying. In most cases, it doesn't matter unless you have particular use cases where you have thousands of partitions, you have thousands, or they're all writing uh, different places. They're small. Uh, but it's still pretty hard to like you know exhaust iops on some of these modern ones. now uh to some degree performance optimization is everybody's problem right whether you work in distributed systems or not you're gonna 
at some point you're going to do performance optimization. Now, you know, we always talk about doing that prematurely and how it's sort of fun and we easily get sucked into it even before it's economically useful to do. But let's just agree that it's everyone's task. How do you think, and I, I mean, I, I've heard you say all this, so I think the answer is in the previous 10 minutes, but I wonder how you would describe the difference between performance optimization as a distributed systems engineer relative to something else. Uh, like, like I, I know there's, there's a lot of different kinds of things one can build that aren't distributed systems, but mm. what makes this different in your mind? Yeah, that's pretty... Uh... Uh, interesting, right? Like, like the, the first thing that uh, that you know that changes, uh, uh, like you said, like uh, like you have multiple things, but but let's say when we say distributed, it's something with the network, and uh, you're you have two different uh, people who are communicating with each other, uh, and a lot of the things that we see actually comes from this particular thing. Uh, so it. it so the main thing that we've focused on is, and, and the thing we see over and over again is that if you batch better, uh, you get uh, good performance in terms of lower CPU utilization and higher throughput, but you get worse performance in terms of latency. And that is kind of what we are always uh, you know, uh, fighting against. And uh, that's where a lot of these improvements in our team uh, that we, uh, like we're working on, like we are also looking at say uh, replication uh, improvements uh, where you know, like if you have, uh, like again, there's 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 the system part, like you mentioned. Uh, like if you have a thousand, uh, 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 like a thousand partitions, that kind of can be done on an, on another software that's working on a single uh, 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 like instance. But uh, you also have a thousand partitions, and then in Kafka, what we have is we have three replicas, and then if you have replicas. Uh, like you know, and the, so that is like three thousand replicas, and now that it, this particular guy, let's say you have thousand leaders, and then you have like two thousand other uh, followers that it has to uh, that have to replicate from this, and if these are all in uh, say different uh, uh, hosts, for example, uh, let's say you have a hundred broker cluster, uh, then what will happen is all the ninety nine will have to talk to this particular uh, broker. And all 99 will have to replicate from this because that's how we have spread it. And then you'll have these smaller writes and you'll have a, a larger overhead versus like, for example, if you brought them closer, uh, like, you know, if you had uh, these things distributed around, let's say just 20 brokers or 15 brokers, now only 14 of them. And if you have this single broker is getting like say 10 megabytes per second, then it only gets divided among them. And we're just, uh, uh, you know, replicating, like we're just doing IO of like say a megabyte, or probably even lower, uh, but we can get much better performance. So these are the kind of things that come up only in a distributed systems environment, uh, because it, it, it's a question of how are you distributing like work across all these guys? Uh, how are they talking to each other? Uh, which parts are they? Uh, and the other thing is, uh, this is again not even like in distributed systems, right? Like this is the like like if you have a thousand uh, different uh, partitions and then two brokers are talking to each other, and then what they are looking at is uh, there are a bunch of changes, and then the second broker uh, gets all the the updates from the first broker, and it has to let's say go through each one of them. It goes in a loop, and it looks at hey, do you have changes? Do you have changes? Do you have changes? And that starts uh, spending CPU, 
And what you can do better is if you can have a notification mechanism where this other broker knows, hey, these are the only ones, uh, most of the times we don't expect changes because we're constantly replicating. And these are the only partitions that have data. Uh, then you can again do, uh, uh, like, you know, you can be more efficient when you are, uh, like, you know, uh, exchanging uh, or replicating. And this is another place which only, which probably only comes up in this distributed uh, system space. And there's also the whole load balancing question, which is very interesting. Like, how do you balance across all these guys? Uh, do you balance for, uh, the, the, the resources are the same. Do you balance for CPU? Do you balance for uh, uh, memory? Do you balance for network? Uh, do you balance, and then you have these, uh, uh, you know, uh, interesting, uh, uh, like heuristics. Basically, you can look at number of partitions, number of leaders, and just do balancing on that so that you don't, like, you know, it's a little confusing to look at all these other things. So if you just balance that, that acts as a pretty good proxy for all these other resource utilization that I spoke about. And this only comes up in distributed systems because you have these so many small ones and uh, you can now, you have these, uh, you know, you have this opportunity uh, to like assign work to each of them and you get to decide over time, uh, like how things are changing. And then you have this load balancing opportunity. If it was a single uh, instance, uh, you wouldn't have it. And it also opens up a bunch of things around sizing. Uh, it opens up a bunch of uh, stuff around, uh, you know, do you, what kind of instances should you run, right? Like, like because we can like split up work in these uh, different uh, ways, we have the opportunity to either use small instances or large instances, and then we want to use the ones where we have a perfect performance. So if you can think about it. If you use a large instance, depending on your workload, the advantage that you get is uh, when you have very high uh, throughput, uh, suddenly the number of other uh, like you know brokers that it needs to replicate from will be smaller because all of them are bigger. So you get these this performance improvement in terms of better batching. But the big downside is now you have these large instances when you don't have traffic, you're losing a lot of money that you're leaving on the table. They're sitting around doing nothing. Uh, and it also, it may be harder to get them. And then if one broker one broker goes down, there's a bigger blast radius probably. Uh, so there's this other uh, advantage of going with these smaller ones. Uh, and then from a performance perspective, you need to look at, hey, how many, how small can you go? How wide can you go? And there are all these scalability bottlenecks that will start coming up in your metadata. If you go to really small instances, what happens when you go to 100 brokers? Where exactly do you hit bottlenecks. Uh, should we go to 100 small brokers or should we go to 10 large brokers? That becomes a completely different uh, you know, way to look at it, which only comes up with distributed systems because now we have the ability to easily load balance. We have the ability to move things around. And uh, so we can start thinking about these things. And uh, another area the, uh, that comes up is, uh, you know, like isolation, like, uh, like we want to have guaranteed performance. You want your P99 latencies, et cetera, to not be affected. Uh, let's say you have some uh, like, you know, clients which misbehave a little bit uh, with some code path doesn't, that doesn't have the right quotas. And suddenly like it uses a lot more memory than it, what is expected. And then it can fail. And when it fails, it can take down, uh, it can affect performance for everyone else, uh, right? Uh, so in addition to all these things, we can may take decisions on how we would have distributed uh, these in terms of your topics or tenants, however you want to look at it. 
and uh, that gives you the opportunity to have fault tolerance. If you have a large cluster of 100 brokers or larger, you can say, hey, these 10 are only for this kind of workload. So that if it goes down, I know these are the topics that will get affected. And I'm sure that all, everything else will probably keep running uh, pretty well, uh, even though this is kind of affected. Uh, so that's the other angle to look about, look at. So, yeah. So coming up against time here, I want to ask one more question. If you had one word of advice to give to an engineer who was not currently working in distributed systems, but was listening to this and thinking, well, you know, there's a lot of performance optimization stuff there. I kind of know that, but there's these additional aspects of like the network and things that are interesting and, and just, it seems fun to some people, right? This is a really appealing kind of work. What would your advice be to somebody who is a software developer who isn't working in distributed systems engineering right now, but wants to be? How do you, how do you get started? Short answer. How do you get, yeah, I mean, uh, like I would say, I mean, it depends on where you're starting from. I would say a good starting point is start using these uh, systems like Apache, Kafka, etc. Like install it, start using it. Uh, and also start from something uh, very basic. Uh, don't worry, like performance optimization probably happens a little later, uh, but just for the, to play around with, you can start different uh, like processes, uh, figure out how they can communicate with each other. Uh, there are standard things that you can use, like say gRPC, or you can make HTTP calls, uh, set that up, uh, look at how uh, things would talk to each other. And then this basic things of how, a basic thing around how things talk to each other, even if you don't go to all the levels of details around like you know, TCP and then where does our time get spent, uh, even just having a high level understanding, uh, making calls uh, with two, two two different you know, processes that can run at the same time. Uh, and then uh, you know, now it's very easy to spin up VMs and to spin up things on different computers. Uh, so then if you can actually bring these up on different computers, you'll go through all the basic things that, we, that come up over and over again, which is basically discovery. How do these two guys talk to each other? How do they know where they are? And then like, you know, if you are interested in performance, then you can start asking, if I send a single request, how much time is it going to take? And then if I say keep the, where do I put those uh, instances? If, if I put them uh, close to each other in the same building, what kind of latency do I expect? If I put them far away, and you can do this with the cloud providers today because they allow you different AZs, different zones, different regions. And then you start saying, hey, this is what I expect. And then you get a feel for what is happening. And when you don't see that, when you don't, uh, when you say like, you know, you know that an instruction in a computer, if it's a two gigahertz processor, takes so much time. And then uh, you can, you'll start seeing patterns around, hey, this doesn't seem right. Uh, this should be taking like a millisecond. It's taking like 10, 20, 100 milliseconds. Uh, then there must be an opportunity here. Where is time going? And I think that's a pretty good uh, way to get started, get excited about it. And you would start from, the basics, right? You would start from the fundamentals. And there isn't a lot, I mean, there's a lot of details and complexity as you start looking at it, but fundamentally it's pretty simple. Like it's like talk, two people talking and you kind of understand, hey, these are the guys, this is what you must be doing. For latency, you know, like you should be able to process messages when that person's messages come, otherwise it's going to be slow. Uh, so yeah, I mean, building something like very basic, exchange some basic messages, then you'll start 
you'll develop a pretty good uh, uh, understanding of whether you like this field and why it's exciting, which are the parts uh, where things can go wrong. And then there's also failures. So we do a bunch of things around things going wrong. Uh, this is the next level where you can uh, inject issues. What happens if there's some issue with these two, you can't talk. What happens if there's suddenly a bunch of messages? What happens, um, you know, uh, there's a large message, small message. Uh, so yeah, with a very small, uh, you know, uh, uh, setup, you can start playing with all these different things uh, to start building your intuition around what is happening and what is possible today. So you can work with hardware that is possible today. And as new hardware and new things come up, all of this will change. So then that will give you a feel for how things will change over time. As you know, something might become faster, something might become cheaper. In cases these get cheaper, memory doesn't get so cheap. So you will shrink memory and you'll get, you'll pay a little more for SSDs. Uh, and that gives you a big benefit in cost. But tomorrow memory might become cheaper or something else might change. And uh, yeah, I think that's how it will evolve over time. My guest today has been Aditya Chandra. Aditya, thanks for being a part of Streaming Audio. Thanks, Tim. Thanks a lot. It was great uh, being here with you. And there you have it. Hey, you know what you get for listening to the end? Some free Confluent Cloud. Use the promo code 60PDCAST, that's 60PDCAST, to get an additional $60 of free Confluent Cloud usage. Be sure to activate it by December 31st, 2021, and use it within 90 days after activation. Any unused promo value after the expiration date is forfeit. And there are a limited number of codes available, so don't miss out. Anyway, as always, I hope this podcast was useful to you. If you want to discuss it or ask a question, you can always reach out to me on Twitter at TLBerglund. That's T-L-B-E-R-G-L-U-N-D. Or you can leave a comment on a YouTube video or reach out on Community Slack or on the Community Forum. There are sign-up links for those things in the show notes if you'd like to sign up. And while you're at it, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and to this podcast wherever fine podcasts are sold. And if you subscribe through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a review there. That helps other people discover it, especially if it's a five-star review. And we think that's a good thing. So thanks for your support, and we'll see you next time.